Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, then visit brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code recovery survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. So they hit me in the back of the head with a baseball bat, fractured my skull and my brain was bleeding. So I was going like in and out of consciousness quite a lot. The next thing I remember it was being tied to a chair. That was the last time I ever sold drugs. My guest today is named Adam Carroll. He is a former drug dealer turned sober coach. He is also a certified breathwork therapist and a certified nutritionist. Welcome to the show, Adam. Hi, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on, first of all. Uh, yes, my name is Adam Carroll. I was born in Vancouver, Canada. And then uh, I guess we'll get into my story. Shivani, just go ahead. Yeah, perfect. All right. All right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I was born in Vancouver, Canada. When I was seven, my parents got divorced. So um, I played sports at an early age, like from age probably three or four. I started playing soccer and stuff. Uh, played sports consistently all the way to high school. So my parents got divorced when I was seven. Uh, then I started just living with my mom. My dad moved uh, away. Um and I would see him once or twice a month uh, every once in a while. Uh, he coached my soccer team, so we would spend some time there. Um, that was a good chance for us to spend some time together. I didn't find this out till later on, um, but a, a drug addiction and alcohol played a part in their divorce. So I learned that uh, later as I got older, but makes sense now. Um, I'm a believer in the addiction being a genetic thing because my dad, my grandfather, his father, etc. all the way along um, the male side of my family were all alcoholics. So I'm the first one to ever actually get sober and stay sober, which is cool. Um, but also, I think it is a genetic thing for sure. So um, yeah, so they got divorced around seven. And then um, being raised by a single mother was my mom did really well. Uh, she didn't have much resources. And both of my parents had their own mental health issues and struggles they were going through. But considering what they were going through, I think they did the best they could with what they had. Um, my mom was always there for me and a really good support network for me to have. But I think um, I was missing like that male role model, um, like, so that, like a, a man that I could look up to on how a man is supposed to act and the values that you should have and stuff like that. I, I didn't really have that at the time. So I was kind of lost in that sense. Um, I wasn't really sure how to behave or uh, how what I liked, what I didn't like. And when I get, eventually, so I got into high school at the start of high school, I got started to get uh, bullied really bad. Um, and like beat up quite a couple of times, the emotional side of it. Um, and I just remember like being, feeling super insecure and uncomfortable in my own skin. Um, and I didn't know what to do about that. Um, I didn't know like 
looking back on it now, I wish I would have just like stand, uh, stood up for myself and just like either fought back or said something to prevent that from happening. But in the moment, I was just just like a victim. I, I didn't didn't know what to do. I was just uh, really like confused as to why this was happening and what I was supposed to do and stuff. And when I would ask, when I would talk to my mom about it, she would just be like, "Well, just walk away. Like, don't don't uh, feed into it at all. Just walk away. Get away from that situation." Which isn't bad advice, but I just uh, I <clears throat> I think a little differently now, and I think standing up for yourself and be, being able to be assertive uh, is important, especially when you're a young adult. Um, so yeah, I was getting bullied pretty bad, so that's when I first started to drink and start to use drugs, just because um, one, it got me a part of a community of people that were doing that, so it was cool to be around some friends who were doing the same thing. And then also it was the one thing in my life that I found that made me feel more comfortable in my own skin. So I just started by smoking weed and drinking. Um, and uh, during that, uh, the people that I was hanging out with were also selling drugs. So I started to sell drugs for them at the school I was going to. Um, I got kicked out of high school and at the end of grade eight for selling drugs at school. So that was the end of my school career. Um, that I never ended up going back to school, but I did get my GED years later. Uh, and then <clears throat> when I was 14, so uh, pretty much the summer after me getting kicked out of school, my mom asked me to leave because she couldn't handle uh, just the way I was behaving. I was uh, pretty crazy. I was getting in trouble with the law. I was doing and selling drugs at school, which she was very much aware of. So she just kicked me out and couldn't handle it anymore. I think it's uh, way too much for a single mother to try to deal with. So uh, when she asked me to leave, I left and my dad uh, lived in a different different province in Canada. So he rented me an apartment in Vancouver, but he didn't live there. So he was not there. So I had an apartment all to myself when I was 14, 15 years old. Um, and I also... <laughs> With selling drugs and stuff, I was making decent money. So I bought myself a car, but didn't have a driver's license. So I had a car and an apartment when I was 15. <laughs> uh, looking back on it, I mean, it was really fun at the time, but looking back on it now, it's like way too much freedom for someone to have at that age, especially given what I was going through. Um, but yeah, so then when I dropped out of school, things just got more serious pretty quick because I had so much free time and I was just like, really kind of enthralled with the environment that I was in. I really like looked up, looked up the guys that I was working for because everyone was afraid of them. Everyone respected them. They had really good, maybe not, not good reputations, but like reputations, like people knew who they were and not to mess with them. And having been a victim of bullying, that was like very attractive to me. I, I, I kind of wanted people to be scared of me. That's a weird thing to uh, say now, but at the time I, I did want to be like respected and feared a little bit. So um with their influence on me, I kind of idolized them and kind of just followed along with what they were doing. So I started doing steroids, cocaine, and smoking cigarettes all within probably two months of me having my own place and hanging out with those guys quite often. Um and then I just kept working the phone, just doing uh deliveries here and there fairly benign stuff um like a little bit of weed and pills and stuff uh nothing too crazy um and then i did that for about a well maybe a little under a year and then i went to go do a deal and i got set up so someone um set me up obviously i pulled up to a place and they pulled me out of the car 
beat the crap out of me. And then uh, I eventually got myself back together, got back to my place. When I got back to my place, my mom had left me a voicemail because she got a voicemail on her phone, uh, which was a death threat from someone. Um, and having my mom having had listened to it, she freaked out and called the cops. So I went over to my mom's house and in the living room was the police officer, my mom and myself. And we all listened to the voicemail together, uh, which was really emotional because it was my mom. I could like see my mom's heart like breaking when she was hearing that type of stuff. It was really hard for me to uh, see the pain that I was causing her. But at that age, I was so young and naive that I really didn't even, it, it didn't really bother me. It bothered her more than it bothered me. Um, but the police officer, I had some interactions with him in the past. So his advice to me was just to get out of the province for a little while. So that's what I did. Um, I think I got like the next flight the next day, um, to another province where my dad was, but I didn't, I, I moved to the province where my dad was, but I didn't actually live with him. I lived with, um, some coworkers. I, so I started working at Foot Locker when I moved up there. Within about a month, I uh, became really good friends with the manager, moved in with her. Um, so I, I lived with her, worked at Foot Locker. Um, when I moved up there, I had the intention of trying to go back to school and just being a normal kid. That's I remember when I was on the plane on the way up there, that, that's what I was saying to myself. That's what I really wanted to do. But within about a month or two of being in that environment, and uh, Foot Locker is a pretty good place to network if you know what you're looking for. So um, I just felt like that kind of like draw and that pull um, back to what I was, what I used to do. Um, and then I met a couple of guys who were doing what I uh, wanted to do. But where I moved uh, was a very different city than Vancouver. Um, it's a much more violent and serious drug environment. So I didn't really realize what I was stepping into at the time, um, but I went from selling uh, what I said, like fairly benign stuff to just hard stuff and much bigger quantities than I'd done before. So it was okay. I didn't really have a problem with it at the time. I was very addicted to cocaine. Uh, I was doing it all day, every day um, to stay awake, but also just to feel good, obviously, and just to keep working the phone. Like, um, so yeah, I did that pretty consistently for a year, uh, just working the phones every night. And then uh, I was about 16 at this time, I think. And we used to always go to the clubs pretty pretty much every night. We would go to the clubs uh, and we'd have like the VIP sections to ourselves because uh, everybody knew us and respected us. And we'd always have lots of attention from the, the women around and the men would kind of stay away from us because they were a little scared of us, which like I kind of said before, just, it's not, I would never want that now. I don't want anyone to be afraid of me now. But back then, being still like that little insecure, bullied kid, I, I really did want that. Um, so that, I said, that night when we were there, um, a rival kind of crew showed up and we had a big fight in the parking lot. Uh, it was like a big brawl. It was like probably 20 people just punching, <laughs> punching each other like a crazy uh, scene. But I remember being in the middle of a fight or whatever. And then all of a sudden I couldn't feel my left leg and I fell down to the floor. And when I looked down at my leg, I seen a knife like up high on my hip, like stuck in my leg. So it was, uh, hurt really bad at the time. But I remember when I lied down, I tried to like pull it out and someone ran over and like immediately stopped me from doing that. Cause that's very dangerous to do. I learned later. Um, so we couldn't 
go to the hospital at that time just because of what we were doing and who we were. It was not a smart idea to go to the hospital. So one of uh, the guys in the crew, his girlfriend was a nurse. So I got thrown in the back of a pickup truck, drove to our safe house where she met us there. Um, <laughs> I was already drunk and high, but the pain was still insane. And when she pulled that knife out of me, like, I don't know if I've ever felt pain like that ever since then. Like that is uh, hard to describe, but like brutal. Like I almost passed out from the pain, I think. And then uh, she eventually got it out, uh, put a lot of gauze in there because there was a lot of blood, stitched me up, gave me some antibiotics. So I was good. But um, after that, <clears throat> that was like a, my first real like wake up call to how serious this is and how dangerous it can be. So I decided to take some time off. So I flew back to Vancouver for a couple months just to see my mom kind of reevaluate things. Um, and that's what I did. So I had a couple, or I think about a month or two at home. And after about a month, I just missed my friends and missed my old life and quickly forgot the uh, terrible side to all of that. <laughs> so I ended up going back to where I was before. And I had a bit more of a reputation this time because people know knew what I had been through. And um, I moved up the ranks a little bit. So instead of just running one phone, I was in charge of like a district where there would be three different guys running phones and I would just make sure they had what they needed. So that's what I did for, well, I think about four years almost. But during that four years, there was a lot of things that happened, but I'll just touch on the... The wave tops, the things that stick out mostly in my mind, because there's tons of little fights and stuff that happened. But the big stuff, the the stuff that uh, it was really hard for me to work my way through, I'll just touch on quick. So um, when I came up that second time, I brought a friend with me who was from Vancouver because he wanted to get involved with what I was doing. So he was one of the guys who was going to be working under me on one of the phones. So he did. And he was working on the phone for <clears throat> almost a year, I think. And then uh, one night he called me, I think it was like three in the morning. Uh, he called me in a panic. I could tell that something bad had happened just from the sound of his voice. So he asked me to get there as soon as, as fast as I could. I, would, I had already been up for like two days partying. So I was already in a very weird state <clears throat> and I, I flew over there as fast as I could. When I got there, he was sitting on the outside of his building, like kind of propped up against the edge of his building and he was wearing a white t-shirt and I just remember being covered in blood. So I ran behind him and like kind of sat behind him and let him sit in my lap. And uh, I kept like telling him it was going to be okay. And someone called an ambulance. So I kept telling him it was going to be okay. It was going to be okay. And then uh, he was talking to me initially. And then I remember he couldn't, he, he stopped talking to me and he could like, couldn't say a word. And then I remember hearing like the, the, the death rattle, like his last breath. And then just, he went limp and his head just kind of like slumped over into my arms. And then I realized that he was dead and I was holding my dead friend. Um, and like being in that kind of mindset after being up for two days, I was like so out of it and like confused and like traumatized, but I didn't even really know I was traumatized. It was just like such a weird feeling and obviously super sad. So uh, someone was there to kind of take care of him and make sure the ambulance got to him. I had to get out of there before um, police showed up and stuff. Uh, but he did end up passing away and stuff, which was, uh, I carried a lot of guilt and shame with that for quite a long time, just because I felt like, number one, I was the one who got him into that life. And then number two, I felt like when I was telling him he was going to be okay, I kind of knew that he wasn't. I, I feel like I was giving him false hope. Um, yeah, so that that was tough for me to work through. Um, but I, I've 
I've been able to work through it now and kind of find the empathy and forgiveness from myself in that. Um, and after that, I kind of continued on um, just selling and stuff. Um, and then the main main event that got me to get sober was that uh, when I was, I think it was 20 or yeah, between 19 and 20, I went to go uh, resupply one of my guys. But um, I didn't know this, but I was getting set up by a different crew who pretended to be the guy that I was supposed to go meet. So I remember um, I had a fairly large quantity on me at the time. So uh, we were going to meet in a specific spot. So I turned the corner around this building to where we were going to meet. And then that's the last thing I remember until uh, waking up in the back of a trunk with my hand signed behind my back and something over my face. So they hit me in the back of the head with a baseball bat, fractured my skull and my brain was bleeding. So I was going like in and out of consciousness quite a lot. So I, I don't remember, I remember turning the corner and then I don't remember anything until the trunk. I was in the trunk, kicking the lid of the trunk to see if I could get it to open. I passed out again. Um, and then the next thing I remember, it was being tied to a chair. But the whole time I had my face covered. So I didn't really, uh, my perception of time was really weird. Like I didn't know how long I was gone for and all that. I figured out uh, after that it was between 12 and 24 hours that I was gone. So <clears throat> they had me in the chair tied up. And they had a gun. They kept slamming it to the side of my head saying they were going to kill me. They were doing like um, dry firing, like pull, pulling the trigger with no uh, bullets in the gun, which I didn't even know what that was really. But the clicking sound and the slamming the gun into my head, like I'll never forget that feeling because like it, it wasn't that like I thought I was going to die. I was like 100% sure I was going to die. And I kind of like accepted that. And uh, <clears throat> uh, not weird, but a very like, interesting part of that experience was that I had a point in that where I feel like I was um, on the brink of like dying. I feel like I was losing a lot of blood. My brain was kind of shutting down. And I remember I like left my body and I could see myself sitting in the chair from outside myself, kind of like a third party, third party perspective. And I kind of seen that for like a little while. And then all of a sudden I like just went to this really light place. So it's like very bright with like colors and I was like interacting with like beings. I don't know what to call it other than that. Um, and then <clears throat> I see my grandfather who passed away when I was really young. And I remember him telling me, he's like, you're not ready yet. And then I felt like a, a little bit of like emotion and kind of like a relief. And then like I fell back into my body and I remember the falling part was like, it literally felt like falling. Like I remember like my stomach sinking and then just like, like hitting back into the chair and then like being back conscious in the chair, which was really weird and a very like profound experience. So um, with near death experiences, that's a common thing. People have very similar stories to what I just said uh, when you get that close to losing your life, I guess. So um and then they were also taking a knife across my chest and cutting really deep cuts into my chest. They were just trying to get information from me and uh, ultimately trying to get access to our network. They wanted me to give over like the main phone so they would have all of our contacts and stuff, which I never did do. I just kind of manipulated my way out of that situation. Um, I gave them a burner phone, which they thought was the real phone. I was able to get out of there and then we kind of dealt with it from there. When I got out of there, one of my friends picked me up whenever well actually when i got out of there 
they just let me out and I had to figure out where I was, which took like hours because I was super messed up and I had no idea where I was. So eventually I found out where I was. They gave me my phone and everything back, which was good. So I was able to call my friend. He came to pick me up. And um, anyone who's been involved in this world would probably relate that uh, when something like that happens to one of your crew members, it's like straight up vengeance. Like uh, all the guys at the house that I worked with were just like so mad and like so fired up about getting like revenge on those people. So they had to find out who they were and then where where they were and all that. And I don't actually even know when it ended up happening, but um, I wouldn't say even if I did, but probably something. Um, and that that was the last time I ever sold drugs. So after that. I told the guys, I was like, that, that's it for me. I'm not going to do this anymore. Like, it's not worth me losing my life over. That's as far as I'm willing, that, or that's as close to death as I'm willing to go. Like, that was uh, probably the most scary thing I've ever been through my entire life. Um, and it took me about six months of hospital visits and brain scans and all these things to finally, uh, like, get my senses back. Because for a while, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't really think. I couldn't walk for a couple of weeks. Um, so I had like severe, uh, brain trauma to the back of my brain and to my brain stem. So, uh, I had like atrophy of one of my arms and I couldn't feel certain parts of my body. Just like, uh, a lot of really bad stuff can come from a traumatic brain injury. So I learned that the hard way. Uh, and after that six months of the healing, I <clears throat> came time to, for my 21st birthday so given what I had been through and all that, the guys wanted to take me out for a big party at the club for my 21st birthday. So we did. Um, and I remember like we had fun, we were drinking, everything was good. And then um, some guy just looked at me a weird way and I was not a very nice person back then. Uh, so I just decided to punch him and we ended up getting in a fight and I got thrown in jail for fighting again, which was, it happened several times. Um, and so for my 21st birthday, I spent my 21st birthday in jail. Um, and that's a uh, jail cell is a pretty good place to reevaluate your life. If things aren't going very well. Right. <laughs> so I had a lot of time to think and I wasn't that drunk or high. Uh, so I was able to actually think pretty coherently. And I made the decision that when I did get out of jail, the first thing I was going to do is call my mom, be completely open and honest with her and then just get out of that province as fast as I can because you can't just leave those type of places. Like I couldn't have told anyone that I was going to leave or anything like that, that you can't do that. <laughs> so um, that was my plan. And that's what I did. So I got out of jail. They give you the one phone call before you leave. I called my mom. I was totally open and honest with her, told her everything that I'd done. And then uh, got the next flight to Vancouver and that was the last time I used, so February 9th, 2013, uh, when I got out of jail, and I haven't had a drink or drug since then. Um, then I got back to Vancouver, started my sobriety journey. Um, when I got back to Vancouver, I went to a neurologist and a psychologist just to kind of evaluate where I was at. I knew I had traumatic brain injury, but then I also got diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, but I don't like the D on the end, but I'll, I can go into that later, but um, post-traumatic stress and uh, suicidal depression and all this other stuff. So when I got di diagnosed with that, um, it was really hard to hear because it felt kind of like a death sentence. Like the, the solutions they were giving me to work through those problems were not really like 
solutions that I thought would actually make a change because at that point I'd already been on so many different medications and they they do help some people and they have helped me at times but like as a as an actual fix for the root cause of an issue I, I don't think that's what they're intended to do so um, I didn't really like the solutions they were giving me so that was frustrating. Um, but they gave me more medication to be on. So I, for the first year or two of my sobriety, I was sober in the sense that I wasn't using drugs or alcohol, but I was heavily medicated because I was having panic attacks every night. I couldn't sleep, super anxious, super paranoid. I had a couple warrants out for my arrest and also some death threats, which I was getting like probably every couple weeks for a year. So I, w- I wouldn't leave the house. I was uh, paranoid, but like as you would be when people are out there trying to kill you and they know where you are. It's a pretty weird thing to come to terms with. Like uh, even now, I have come to the terms with, or I've come to terms with the fact that if there's certain people that I see, like I just I better be ready to throw down and hopefully they don't have any weapons because it's just like, that's a part of that territory. There's some people that just, I mean, it's almost been 10 years, so maybe things wouldn't go that way now. But for the first five years, I kind of had to just accept the fact that, like, people were looking for me. And if if I seen them, then I had to be ready to uh, protect or defend myself. Um, so that, that's obviously very stressful. Um, and that was a big, co- big part of my uh, panic attacks, I think, just that constant stress and worry. Um, and then... I went to my first AA meeting. I went to um, 90 meetings in 90 days. uh, And I got a mentor and started working the steps. I got through step one, two, and three. Uh, Okay, it was was not easy. Um, But then when I got to step four, that was like super hard and very overwhelming. I do not think I was ready for that at the time, just to to write down everything I'd ever done wrong and all that on a piece of paper and have to look at it and change it and add more. And I didn't have a job at this time, so I had a lot of free time. So I just, just to spend so much time doing that and looking it over made my suicidal thoughts much worse. Um, when I got sober, I assumed that things would just get better because I was sober. But for me personally, when I got sober, things actually got worse from like a mental health perspective, um, from my depression and uh, suicidal thoughts and all that, because I didn't have the things that used to keep me calm and like in check. I had none of that. So I was actually more like aggressive and off the rails than I was uh, when I was using. <clears throat> so I had a suicide attempt um, about a, probably a year and a half into my sobriety. After just doing the step four, I didn't actually even complete it. I I'd filled up the form, but that was as far as I got. And just looking at that and having those emotions come back and stuff was just too much for me to handle at that time. And my mom was much more involved in my recovery. Uh, so she was seeing that I was going to the meeting and I was showing her that I was really trying, but I could see the pain that it was causing her. Um, and I was in a lot of pain and my whole family was in a lot of pain watching me go through what I was going through. And I didn't know what else to do in that situation other than just to check out. Like, suicide doesn't make sense to people who've never had the thoughts. But uh, when you're in that state and you can't think of any other way to get out of it and um, you and everybody around you is in pain, it was the only thing I thought 
to I got good things to do that would get me out of pain and get my family out of pain. So I my plan was just to go to the SkyTrain station in Vancouver and jump in front of the SkyTrain. That was my plan. Um, so I went down to the SkyTrain. I think it was like one in the morning as I was going down the stairs to the platform where the SkyTrain is. I kept saying, uh, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. <clears throat> and then I think the third time I said it, I heard a voice uh, in my own head because there was nobody there. And I was just like, you don't have to. And I don't know where that voice came from or what it was. Um, with the way I am now, I'm a pretty spiritual guy. So I think that was like divine intervention or something. Um, and <laughs> it was like a very distinct voice. Like, you know, uh, Morgan Freeman, the actor. Yeah. It was like in that type of voice. So it was like, kind of like took me by surprise. I was like, what? But it was, um, it was actually really comforting. Like when I heard that, I, I kind of fell to my knees and cried a little bit and then just picked myself back up, got myself back together and went back home. Um, actually what I didn't mention, I wrote a suicide note and left it under my bed. So I quickly grabbed that and destroyed that, threw that in the garbage because I was going to keep trying. Um, just, just that little thing, like just the, you don't have to coming from wherever it came from was enough for me to, uh, keep trying. Cause I felt like that just gave me that little bit of hope that I needed. Um, so then I kept going to the meetings, but one thing I think I made a mistake doing is when I first got involved in the program, I just wanted to get through the 12 steps as fast as I could. Cause I figured like, as soon as I get all of them done, then I'm going to be better and life will be great. Um, sadly it doesn't work that way. So. I think the first mentor I chose, I chose a little too fast because I was just rushing it. So the second time I went to a different meeting and I went to the same meeting for six months and I didn't pick a mentor until after six months. <clears throat> and I was much more specific with the mentor that I picked. So uh, he could relate a lot to me. He'd been through very similar things that I had been through. Um, and I knew I found the right mentor when he knew exactly what I was going to say before I said it. It was like I would start to say something and then he would just finish my sentence. So I was like, okay, this guy definitely understands where I'm coming from. He knows what I'm dealing with. So I felt very uh, safe and understood with him, which I think is really important in the, in a mentor-protege type relationship. Um, so then with him, I got through all the 12 steps for the first time and I felt a lot better. Um, definitely made me feel a lot better. Um, but... Uh, I feel like the the program addresses a lot of like your psychological and character defects. But for me, what was missing was like my soul, like my spirit. Like I, I had a lot of unprocessed processed trauma to get through. And also to kind of, since I started drinking and using so young, I didn't really have any like sense of self. I didn't know like who I was or what I liked or what I didn't like, what I wanted to do, what my purpose was. And also, like, I hated myself. I couldn't look in the mirror. I couldn't look at myself in the eyes. I would never let people take pictures of me. I, I like, straight up hated myself. And after I finished the first 12 steps and I'd been in the program for over a year, you're allowed to sponsor people then. So there was this younger guy who looked up to me and asked me to be a sponsor. I was hesitant, but I said yes because I didn't want to say no. Um but looking back on that now, that was a big mistake on my part because I was not in a place where I could uh, be what he needed me to be. He ended up overdosing and passing away. So that was um, really hard for me because I felt super guilty. And uh, just when someone's under your care like that, like you always question if I did enough, could I have done more? Like, what was he thinking? Like, 
could why didn't he call me like all those type of things so that's when i had my second and final suicide attempt because that just brought back all the suicidal thoughts again so i took 30 milligrams of xanax and was just planning to fall asleep and never wake up again uh so i took all the the Xanax and I remember about like 20, 30 minutes later, it hit me. You feel super messed up. I fell onto the floor and my dog came into my room and lied right next to me on my chest. And he was like looking into my eyes. And I've always had a really close attachment with animals, especially dogs and especially my own dog. But we had this weird like moment where he was looking into my eyes. I was looking into his. And up until that point, I was like very clear and like adamant that I didn't want to live anymore but just from like him lying on my chest and looking into my eyes it was like I didn't want to leave him alone and I didn't want to leave my family alone so it was like I don't know something with animals is like a very powerful healing tool just him being there for me and lying on my chest was like enough for me to want to keep living but I just didn't know how I was going to keep living so um, I got up off the floor, made my way to the bathroom, made myself throw up, try to get as much of it out of my system as I could. Um, and then eventually I did fall asleep, but obviously I woke up and uh, thank God for that. Um, so that was, yeah, that's kind of like the first two years of my sobriety. And then since then, uh, things have just been getting better every year. I, I've got a better grasp on the program. I've, I've done the steps a fair amount of times now and I incorporated a lot of other things into my recovery that I felt like really helped me. My second mentor, the guy who I really related with, he was a breathwork therapist. He he looks like a guy that you would think like a prison tattooed big guy. Like he looks like you would think he would look, but he's also a breathwork therapist. So since it was coming from him and I really respected him, I was like, okay, like I was willing to try anything. And especially if he said that it worked for him, I was definitely willing to try it. So I did. Um, and that was uh, the first time I ever did breath work. It was about an hour. So for about 40 minutes ish, you do the breath work. And then the last 20 minutes, you just fall into a meditation. The breath work went fine. I was feeling like uh, releasing a lot of energy and stuff. It was good. And then when I fell into the meditation, I kind of had like a, it's not a hallucination because I didn't take any drugs or anything, but like I had some visuals and I got to actually spend time with my grandfather and say goodbye to him because I never got to say goodbye when I was younger. So that was like a very profound, like big emotional release for me at that time. And then also um, when I was going through the suicidal thing, uh, my mentor at the time has his name is Shane. He's a really good guy. We're still good friends. He said something to me that I'll never forget. And I use this quote over and over again um, with some guys that I work with who have some suicidal thoughts. This is like the quote that I always come back to. <clears throat> so it's that if you killed yourself today, you'd be killing the wrong person because you don't know who you're going to become. Mm. And when he said that to me, I was like, oh, damn. Like that was like a very profound thing to hear. And that really shifted my perspective into like, because I really identified with the post-traumatic stress disorder. Like I thought, like I had this for the rest of my life. There's no way to fix it. It's just like something I have to accept. So that's why I don't like the D on the end. I think like, I call it post-traumatic stress because disorder implies that something's abnormal. But if you go through a traumatic event in your life, like I, all the things that I went through, I think it makes sense that my body and brain would have some like stress and anxiety associated with that. I don't think it's a disorder. That doesn't seem abnormal. 
because like if your body gets a cold and you get a fever, that's normal. If your body gets a cold and doesn't get a fever, that's a disorder. So it's kind of a little weird the way they label it. I got post-traumatic stress. And then through all the work that I did with breath work and the program and uh, my training and nutrition, I found post-traumatic growth. And then through that post-traumatic growth, I found my post-traumatic purpose. So I actually think there's a really beautiful side to post-traumatic stress. And that's the growth that can come from that. If you can look at it that way and not identify with the labels that you're given. Yeah, definitely. Because I was guilty of that when I first was told that I had it. I, I, I totally identified with it. And it really rocked my sense of self and my confidence just because I felt like I was broken. There was no way to fix me. But then when I kind of reframed things in that context, that put the power back in my hands and gave me a lot more um, control and like excitement about um, working on myself and getting my life back together. So after I did that breathwork session, I remember uh, after <laughs> you sit up really slowly when you're done and I took the eye mask off. And I remember the first words out of my mouth to him. I just looked him in the eyes and I was like, what the fuck was that? Like, that's even possible. Like, that's crazy. Like, I can't, I can't believe that you can just do that with your breath. Like it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And me saying that I, when I do it with other people for the first time, they usually have the same response where they're just like, so surprised. and just like, what? Like that's, that's even possible. It, it's such a powerful tool. And uh, honestly, one, it's hard to say like, that's the most important or powerful thing that I've ever done, but it's definitely high up on the list. And also a good description of what breathwork is, is uh, breathwork is a tool to create stillness. When you find a sense of stillness, you find a sense of oneness. So like a sense of oneness with you and all the other humans, or you're one with the universe. When you find a sense of oneness, you find a sense of connection. When you find a sense of connection, you find love. And then to me, love is God. So that's just my opinion because everybody has their own higher power and whatever they want to believe. But to me, I, I believe that if I'm operating from a place of love and I'm in the present moment and I uh, want the best for the people around me and I love myself and I love everyone I'm around and my heart is open and I'm not closed in any way, then I believe that like that's God. Like I'm in God's world and I'm operating like the way God would want me to live. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of how I see breath work. I, it's, a tool to tap into your like to uh, quiet your analytical mind and tap into your subconscious mind and then i use it mostly to heal from past trauma but there's a lot of different things you could use it for uh just the active meditation basically so it's beneficial for everybody to do but especially if you have some trauma in your past it can be very helpful um and yeah from there things just uh every year have been slowly getting better and better and then uh, over the last two years is when I started to get uh, much more involved uh, in the social media side of recovery. So when I created my uh, business that I have now, um, <clears throat> made a lot of good friends through the Instagram community and a lot of good connections, um, started my own program, which is called the Addict 2 Athlete Method. So the number two the addict to athlete method uh, on Instagram and Facebook. So the idea behind the program is taking a more like holistic approach to recovery. Um, Cause when I did the program and the 12 steps for the first time, I had a lot of, I got a lot of answers, but I still had a lot of questions that I didn't have answers for. Um, I've always loved training and nutrition. That's always been like a passion of mine. So I got certified as a trainer and a nutritionist. 
pretty much right when I got sober. Um, so training, I was, I, I always, I worked out every day. That was uh, consistent for me and that's still consistent for me now. And I ate healthy, but <clears throat> I still, the, the God piece and the soul piece was the piece that I was missing. So the breath work is how I found that for myself. So I combine all those things together into a program. So I have a couple sober groups that are going on right now. Um, so in each, it doesn't, uh, if you come into the program, it doesn't matter which group you're in really. Um, but the program, you get a training program. So like a normal personal training, uh, physical program to go to the gym and work out. You get a, an either like a, a meal plan or just some tips and principles to follow on how to eat properly. Um, and then a certain amount of breathwork sessions a week. And then we do a weekly zoom call, like a zoom meeting, like a normal, um, group zoom meeting. Um, also I've developed a course. So we do a course, uh, working a lot on your shadow, like, you know, Carl Jung, like the shadow. Um, so like looking at your ego and your negative core beliefs and all that stuff and working your way through that. So like I actually created a course and a curriculum. So you start with module one and then you end up through module four. So that takes uh, about a month, but then we kind of just keep redoing it every month because there's always more to learn. So that's a big part of it. And also there's a private Facebook group that everybody's in. So we do daily check-ins where you do a video just to kind of do like a body scan. How are you feeling today? What's going on in your life? Um, and then trying to uh, also help people create like good habits for their morning. So like a routine. So 10 minutes of reading, 10 minutes of physical activity and 10 minutes of stillness, whatever you want to do for those things, that's fine as long as those things are done. So it could be any form of exercise, could be any form of stillness and any form of reading, just as long as you get those things done. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how I approach my own recovery. Um, and that worked really well for me and everyone I've worked with so far, it's worked really well for them too. So it's just, uh, cause when you finish the 12 steps, it's like, you now you're sober and that's a great thing and you should congratulate yourself and be happy about that but like what are you going to do with your life moving forward now like what how are you going to live what's your purpose how are you going to take care of your body how are you going to take care of your mind how are you going to take care of your soul all that type of stuff was i didn't know and i didn't have answers for but then when i found the answers for myself i just thought that more people could uh uh, use that type of information. So yeah, I created the program and ever since then I've just been growing it, um, pretty consistently and it's been going really well. It's getting busier every month and I've helped a lot of people and I don't look at things, um, from a monetary perspective, uh, anymore really. Like I don't make dec decisions based on money. Uh, obviously I need to get paid so my, uh, <laughs> I can live my life. Like money is the tool you need money to survive, but I'm, I make decisions based on like the biggest impact I can make. So with the time I have left, I just want to help as many people as I can. Um, and with people who can't afford it, um, I still find a way to work with them and spend some time with them. Because in this community, um, it's oftentimes tough to get the funding that we need for the help that we need. And especially if you're really struggling and going through a hard time, it's more important that you get the help you need right now and you can kind of figure out the money part later. So if anyone's struggling and wants to get involved in anything that I mentioned, then you can't afford it. Just reach out to me and we can figure something out because I don't want money to be a barrier between people getting sober or not. I think that's like a very small little thing, like just money aside, if you need help, you should reach out and get the help that you need. 
but yeah, that's all I can think of, man. So far, I think that's everything. <laughs> wow, man, that, that was an incredible story. And I was, I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. I, there was at no point that I wanted to, to jump in there and like interrupt you. Cause you were just flowing so well, man. And that was, that was like something out of a movie. It really was, man. Like it's, it's just incredible. All the different situations that you went through and just to see, you know, kind of the beginnings and then you, your career in, in dealing, ramping up and then all the traumatic events and man, like that was, that was intense, man. And, uh, I would love if you could let the listeners know if they are interested. I know you mentioned Facebook and Instagram. Are there any other ways that they can get in contact with you? Do you have a website or are you just on social media? Yeah. So, uh, as of right now, Facebook and Instagram, the addict, the number two athlete method, uh, so Instagram and Facebook. And then I am in the process of creating a website so that should be done by early August. So it should be done soon. I'll have a lot more information on there um, about the services I offer, a little bit about me and my story, um, and then uh, just some links to some other things that I have going on. So I'm also a part of a uh, what would you call it? A convention, I guess. Um, so it's a panel of experts in the mental health and addiction field that are going to do like a TEDx, you know, like TED Talks. So similar to TED Talks, but more for mental health and addiction. We're going to go to 10 different cities in Canada and put on a convention for people in mental health and addiction. Um, so I'm going to be kind of like the personal trainer, nutritionist, breathwork guy. So that's what I'm going to present about and talk about my story. Um, and we have about I think about 10 other people that are also on the panel. So uh, we're, our first event is in November in uh, in Vancouver, Canada. And then we're going to be going to 10 other cities in Canada uh, within that year. So that's a big thing that I'm really excited about doing um, just to reach more people and help. And uh, especially the convention, like the in-person connection with people there, um, just to be a part of that community, I feel really grateful that they even asked me to be a part of it. Um, and just really excited to, to get out there and do more of that. Like every time I do, like even being on your show right now, like it, it just brings me feel, feelings of excitement because like where I was 10 years ago to where I am now is sometimes I like shake my head and I can't even believe that I'm actually doing what I'm doing now. Because if you told me I would be doing this right now, 10 years ago, I would have laughed in your face and told you the most ridiculous thing. Like, there's no way I thought I would have the life that I have now. And I owe all of that to my mom and the program. Um, I did do a lot of work for myself, but the 12 steps in AA really did save me and, and my mom for sure. Um, but then just the other parts kind of helped me become a more well-rounded, well-rounded human being because I really struggled with self-awareness. Like I, Breathwork for me has made has helped me become much more self aware. But for a long time, I was I was very unself aware. Um, so that's a big part of my journey now is just being more aware of like why am I feeling this way? How do I feel? Like just being able to identify all those things is pretty big because I struggled with that for such such, such a long time. Um, but yeah, no, I'm I'm really grateful, man, and thanks for giving me the opportunity. It's super cool. Yeah, thank you, Adam. I really appreciate you coming on today, man, and and just being so open and vulnerable and sharing so many difficult situations. I know it, I know it gets easier as we share our stories, but it, it can bring back those memories. I know it can be difficult at times for us to share some of those darker things that we've been through. So I really appreciate you coming on and just being so open. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It's super cool. 
Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate it. Guys, be sure to check the links in the show notes to find out more about Adam's coaching and the services that he offers. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.